2: WPHD, WPHD, HD, WOTL,
3: HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. Always live on the free Odyssey app. The revolution will be broadcast.
2: This is the next generation
3: of talk. Now, on Talk Radio 1210 WPHD, Rich Zioli.
0: Oh, man, the, uh, The border wall issue is a friggin' mess right now. The White House denies reversing course on the border wall, but guess what? Uh, It sounds like they might be building it, but maybe not building it. They have no idea what they're doing over there. Welcome back to the show. Glad you're here. 855-839-1210. Some good news on the free speech front, by the way. A federal appeals court has now barred the infamous Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency... CISA, as it's known, from coordinating with big tech platforms to censor online speech. The United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit revised a preliminary injunction to include CISA after Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey, who led the suit, successfully filed a motion to expand an earlier order in the Missouri v. Biden landmark free speech case. The court agreed effectively rebuking CISA's frequent interactions with social media platforms to push them to adopt more restrictive policies on censoring election-related speech. These actions, the court found, violated the First Amendment. In response to the massive free speech victory, Bailey took to Twitter to slam the federal agency, The attorney general said CISA is the nerve center of the vast censorship enterprise, the very entity that worked with the FBI to silence the Hunter Biden laptop story. When it comes to defending the Constitution, Missouri doesn't back down. Media Research Center Vice President Dan Schneider echoed those remarks in reaction to the injunction. He said CISA thought it was getting off scot-free, but luckily the Fifth Circuit came back swinging. These anti-free speech zealots must watch their back because I predict the Supreme Court will strongly scold the federal government and their assault against free speech no mas. The revised injunction now prohibits CISA director Jen Easterly and other anti-free speech zealots at the agency from unleashing actions that coerce or significantly encourage social media platforms to remove or limit the promotion of the targeted posts. An earlier version of the injunction included the scandal-plagued White House, the U.S. Surgeon General, the mandate-obsessed CDC, and the FBI, but it spared CISA because it argued that the Attorney General had not presented sufficient proof that the agency had coerced big tech platforms. But the uh, Missouri Attorney General hinted at an imminent fight in the Supreme Court as the Biden regime has pledged to appeal. We look forward to defending your First Amendment rights at the nation's highest court the Missouri Attorney General added. Following the initial injunction, the United States Department of Justice begged the court to temporarily pause the order, claiming it needed time to properly file an appeal. In turn, the court blocked the injunction but suspended the order after the Fifth Circuit agreed to hear the Attorney General of Missouri's new motion. The revised injunction cleared the way for the court to weigh in on whether to take the case or not. Notably, the Media Research Center has their censortrack.org database which is curated daily by researchers and central to the landmark lawsuit censortrack.org i highly recommend you go there censortrack.org and they have all kinds of different stories on there for example um more uh, more election interference google search buries biden opponents that's one of the stories they have on there right now uh there's a lot of various different things they talk about um uh, the censorship against Michael Schellenberger Colin Rugg's got a lot of things on there in fact Diane Feinstein is leaving behind I don't know if you know this or not but a massive 100 million dollar plus portfolio to, to her four daughters a public servant on a six figure salary who was worth eight figures plus remarkable here's what Diane Feinstein left behind a 60 million dollar private jet 21 million dollar San Francisco mansion a seven point four million Washington DC home, a five million dollar Hawaii home, seventy million in cash, and her personal net worth was worth over seventy million dollars. Now, when um, Colin Rugg posted that on Twitter, the Twitter community notes added a context graph to the post that currently reads the following quote Feinstein's husband started his own private equity and investments firm five years before they married in 1980 and his net worth was estimated to be over a billion dollars at the time of his death in 2022 some of Feinstein's net worth is from joint assets with her husband and then they cite CBS News to that but again you got to ask yourself the, the question on all of this, which is how is it that all of these people get so rich all the time? And I wonder if anything that she did as a Senator helped her husband and his private equity firm make more and more money. I don't know all the insider trading, who knows? Anyway, let's go back to this story about the FBI for a moment. This is great news about the appeals court uh, and the censorship. They they the, I think it's fantastic. Uh, CISA, And I have a buddy who works there, by the way. I was making fun of him, making fun of CISA last night for all their election misinformation that they put out. But good. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, coordinating with big tech platforms to censor online speech, and now a federal appeals court has said, you can't do that, CISA. Stop it. This case, Missouri v. Biden, which is going to go to the Supreme Court, is, in my opinion, going to be one of the most landmark cases of our time. It essentially argues this. The government of the United States engaged in censorship by proxy through big tech. By forcing big tech through coercion to censor you and to censor posts and to make sure that only the government approved narratives were what you saw on social media. It's a big darn deal. It's a big freaking deal. If you ask me, it absolutely is. All right. But this FBI article and yes, thank you to Road Warrior for sending it to me. I busted his chops yesterday for the fact that I said, oh, this article, blah, blah, blah. But no, he's right. I mean, it's a good article. It's a good it's a good story. And it's 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 a big one, too. I mean, it's, there, there's so much to this idea that the FBI is targeting you if you're a Trump supporter. There's so much to this. And this article is massive. And, and what the article really, really does show is that they use January 6th much like they use 9-11. January 6th, just like September the 11th, provoked an outsized response from a domestic intelligence apparatus that had failed to warn or prepare for the likelihood of mass violence on that day. Once the breach by Trump supporters occurred, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security and the White House began their almost singular focus investigating and charging the perpetrators at the U.S. Capitol and extrapolating from January 6th into the future. In his first week in office, President Biden directed the intelligence community to undertake a 100-day review of the domestic threat. So you remember how, like, uh, after September the 11th, uh, people were nice to each other back then, and we'd all wave and let people in, and, you know, eventually the middle fingers started coming back and everything like that. But what we watched in the wake of 9-11 was the massive, massive expansion of the federal government, the Department of Homeland Security the subsequent war on terror the subsequent invasion of iraq and then all of a sudden the the complete and utter erosion of the 4th amendment under the patriot act where the government said you know what all we got to do is say the, the t word terrorism and we can do anything we want we can spy on you we can take you away without a lawyer we can we can know what you're checking out at the library whatever it is we whatever we need to do we'll do it we have the power now under the patriot act it's a disaster the patriot act was such a disaster well Instead of learning the lesson from that, well, I, should, I shouldn't say that. Let me, let me rephrase that. They absolutely learned the lesson from that. They, they learned the lesson that they can use an incident like that to provoke fear, expand government power, and crush civil liberties. Crush liberty, crush the, de- the Declaration of Independence, crush the Bill of Rights. So they learned very well after 9-11, I should say. They did. They learned the lesson quite well. She said, all I got to do is just scare people, and then people will willingly give over their liberty to you. Allow me to give my daily superhero analogy, this time, of course, from Captain America, Civil, uh, Captain America the Winter Soldier. When uh, Arlen Zola, in the uh, computer forum, comes out and says, we realize that when we tried to take people's liberty, they fought back. But when we created calamity in the world and scared them, they would surrender their liberty voluntarily. In order to keep you safe, it was almost like I wrote that movie, and I wish I had. Because even though Cocaine White House Dogs is still going to be a huge, huge, massive hit, Captain America: The Winter Soldier made a little bit more money than my anticipated movie would make. But anyway, I digress. The point is, um, that's exactly right. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, if 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 somebody tries to take your liberty, you'll fight, but you'll willingly surrender it. If you think that at any minute now, you know, a terrorist is going to jump out at you from a, behind a shopping mall and blow the whole place up. Or in this case now, a guy in a MAGA hat. So, yeah, that's that's the lesson they learn. They learn that lesson. The government learned that lesson. All you got to do is tell people, you know, you could die. You may get blown up. I still remember that call I got. It was back in 2012. I remember this call. This guy calls up to me and I remember like it was yesterday. He says to me. What do you want to get blown up by a terrorist, Rich? That was what the caller said to me. And uh, I said, not particularly, no. But nevertheless, I still don't really walk around all day, worried that I'm going to get blown up by a terrorist. So I don't want to see my, my liberty completely shredded in the name of prevention. And there was a big debate we had back then about this. I mean, it was a huge debate in the country. Huge debate. And eventually the tide turned. If you remember, the tide turned. I mean, conservatives finally started saying, hey, this is wrong. The government should not be allowed to spy on you. They started to do reforms to the Patriot Act, did not go far enough, started to do reforms to FISA, did not go far enough. And then 2016 happened, and they realized what the government was capable of doing: infiltrating the Trump campaign, spying on American citizens, using this this phony Russian dossier nonsense to create a a, a literal a federal case to try to stop a person from becoming president. Then using all these powers to undermine the presidency, to bring down the presidency. And then in 2020, the CIA, working with the 51 former national security heads, who all come out and turn around and say the Hunter Biden laptop is misinformation. COVID happens. The government starts to control the narrative, control information, what you can say, what you can't, what's information, what's misinformation. They did this with the election, election information, election misinformation, blah, blah, blah. January 6th happens. And then on January 7th, they turn around and they say, let's ramp up again. And nobody stopped them. So just like 9-11, it provoked an outsized response from a domestic intelligence apparatus that had failed to warn or prepare for the likelihood of mass violence on that day. Once the breach by Trump supporters occurred, the FBI, the Department of Homeland Security and the White House began their almost singular focus, investigating and charging the perpetrators at the U.S. Capitol and extrapolating from January 6th well into the future. In his first week in office... President Biden directed the intelligence community to undertake a 100 day review of the domestic threat. So instead of looking at at, at September, I'm sorry, January 6th, as a one off, they said, let's use this as our 9-11. Let's use this as our 9-11. And now the domestic terrorist is you and let's radically expand our power again. In March of 2021, the review resulted in a public declaration that merely stated that domestic violent extremists posed an elevated threat. That's all it said, an elevated threat. It concluded that the most lethal threat came from two groups, racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, specifically white supremacists and militia violent extremists. Our experience on the ground confirms, this," said Attorney General Garland, the number of open FBI domestic terrorism investigations this year has increased significantly. Referring to the attorney general's comments, a defense intelligence official who participated in the review told Newsweek, quote, experience on the ground here means January 6th and other protests questioning the results of the 2020 elections. But in thinking about that new threat, the review fell back upon two decades of experience fighting international terror that skewed the bias towards seeing groups such as the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, as well as militia movements around the country as the Problem because that was what the counterterrorism apparatus was used to focusing on groups such as Al Qaeda and ISIS. Second, the groups, as opposed to individuals, present a framework that lends itself toward a strategy to stop violence before it starts. Even if there was a shift toward the risk of more lone wolf attacks by these. People radicalized in social media. Organized groups fit more neatly into the intelligence community's skill set. And then we have the threat of misguided Americans. Are you a misguided American? Quote, it seems to me that the very word terrorism is more representative of the state of our discourse than a description of the threat, says a civilian terrorism expert who used to be a government official. Is political violence on the rise in America? Yes, it is. But everything that is extreme is on the rise, whereas terrorism, violence intended to bring America to its knees or overthrow the state really doesn't exist anymore. One might not like that. One may not like that. So many reject the current political order, but they are really still trying to get their candidate elected, not pull off some coup to overthrow the government. That never happened on January 6th. And despite even a president like Donald Trump, it's still not possible in America. Remember when I told you about January 6th, nothing was going to change that day. January 6th was the people who were angry, angry, angry people who rioted and angry people that were upset and also people that walked through the building and took selfies and used the bathroom and, uh, but they were never going to overthrow the United States of America. There, were, there was no mechanism to that day. There was nothing they could have done. Even if they were to, to have gotten Mike Pence and, and, and hang hung him in effigy, hang him in effigy on the, on the lawn of the Capitol, nothing would have changed. Trump wouldn't have become president that day. Nothing would have changed. There was nothing they could do on January 6th to overthrow the government or make Trump president. Nothing, nothing. But instead of looking at it like a one-off and going, all right, that was a bad day. Instead, what they said was, well, this is organized political terrorism, domestic political violence, and guess what? It could happen again any minute now, so we got to get ready. Domestic political violence over domestic terrorism is what they try to say now. Now, they don't talk about Antifa... They don't talk about the summer of love. They don't talk about the billions and billions of dollars of property damage in that summer after George Floyd's death when people were burning down cities and throwing Molotov cocktails in police cars and um, setting fire to federal court buildings and things like that. They don't talk about any of that. They don't talk about the riot at the White House, you know, when people tried to breach the White House when Donald Trump was president. They don't talk about that when he he'd be, had to be taken to the bunker. You remember that? They don't talk about, for example, the looting that goes on in cities in America every single day. None of that is considered to be political violence how is it not political violence though the reason is because it's the left doing it so that's not considered to be this they leave that out that's out of it those are just one-offs those are one-offs that's those are people just acting out because they're they're angry that George Floyd died those are one-offs it's like what Larry Krasner said yesterday remember Larry Krasner said yesterday we're going to look at the looting in Philadelphia on a case-by-case basis and determine which one of them are uh, law-abiding citizens looters which ones of them are which one of them are law abiding citizens and which ones are criminals? Looters in Philadelphia. For all the implied um, uh, red and blue states, they are more complex mosaics in terms of race, ethnicity, religion and politics than the north versus south ever was. Of course, I mean, everybody's I mean, in, in, in my town, I got, you know, there's an election coming up. Half the town has blue signs in their yard and the other half has red signs. They got half of t- some of the town some of the neighbors have hate uh, hey, as no home here signs and the next guy next to him has a uh, you know we love the constitution sign it's not like the North and the South was in the Civil War. They, they know this, they know that, but, they, but it doesn't matter for them. The, the threat that any minute now there could be another Civil War gives them the power to spy, gives them the need for more money, the, the, the claim to go to Congress that we need bigger buildings, we need bigger computers, bigger ability to spy on the American people. We have to control misinformation and disinformation, because if we don't, Well, then, any minute now, there could be another civil war. So that means if you're on social media saying things that aren't true about the election, we have to do something about that. Otherwise, your words could lead to the next civil war. That's what they say. Oh, my God. That's exactly what this case in the Fifth Circuit was all about. CISA This federal agency, this cybersecurity agency, telling big tech, listen, when it comes to election misinformation, you people better deal with this and take this down. Otherwise, we're going to have another civil war. So they do it. They do it. They take down posts. They take down things. They monitor. They oppress election. You can't deny the election. You can't question if Joe Biden won the presidency. Can't talk about dead people voting. Can't do any of those things because those words could lead to the next civil war. Got it? For White House head of counterterrorism, Christopher Costa argues that while there is an overriding government aim in protecting U.S. citizens and unflinchingly focusing on the rule of law, the anti-government domestic terrorist threat comes from only a small percentage of misguided fellow Americans. The FBI, despite its rhetoric and numbers, seems to agree. The Bureau applies only limited resources to deal specifically with domestic terrorism, and those resources haven't really increased. The FBI has only about 4,500 agents, intelligence analysts, attorneys, and other staff in its field offices focused on terrorism, according to the Bureau. Only about one quarter of these focus on domestic terrorism. The Bureau allocates about 1,100 personnel or an increase of about 300 full-time people since January 6th. The total is only about 3% of the FBI's employees. However, classified data from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence shows that the number of intelligence reports issued on domestic terrorism remains relatively minor. Of 12,000 intelligence reports repaired by the domestic agencies between 2017 and 2021, fewer than 10% related to domestic terrorism. The remainder mostly dealing with international matters and critical infrastructure protection. For a problem that the Biden administration and the FBI describe as existential, the resources are meager, says another terrorist expert working in the government. Maybe that's the way it should be. The FBI is strictly staying in its lane, but it's certainly not what the public thinks or expects. So think about that for a moment then, right? When I tell you that the left wants to divide this country, that the left wants to divide America, that the left loves pitting people against each other. The left loves having this whole idea of you hating your neighbor and, and, and they love it. And the way they keep doing it, the way they divide America, the way they keep everybody angry at each other all the time is exactly this. Exactly this. This is why they do it. How do they do it? They do it to control. They do it to control because if we all got along, it'd be harder for the government to control everybody. There'd be no need for the government to monitor speech and misinformation and disinformation. Oh, but if the threat of domestic terrorism and civil war could happen at any moment, well, that's a different story. So even though this stuff doesn't exist, even though this whole idea of of domestic terrorism is actually a gigantic fugazi, to listen to Biden, to listen to this administration, you would think at it literally at any moment now, uh, we're about to have the next civil war. Any minute now, Fort Sumner's happening again. Any moment. And it's done on purpose to control, to divide, to control what exactly is terrorism when applied to American citizens and does it apply to the current political situation domestic terrorism is defined in federal laws domestic activities that involve acts dangerous to human life but are a violation of the criminal laws of the United States or of any state and appear to be intended to intimidate or coerce the civilian population a good example would be the people who've been charged with domestic terrorism for the building of that police training facility in Atlanta Georgia those are domestic terrorists they are actually doing things violence in the name of affecting political change. That's an example of domestic terrorism. and the charges are appropriate against those people in Atlanta. The government generally uses the term domestic terrorism and domestic violent extremism interdependently, though there are, there are subtle differences. most important being that terrorism is statutorily defined and extremism avoids the label of terrorist. According to the FBI and DHS, the word violent is important because advocating political or social positions and activism, the use of strong rhetoric and even a generalized philosophic embrace of violent tactics does not necessarily constitute violent extremism and is thus constitutionally protected. That's why they don't call people domestic terrorists with MAGA hats. They call them what? Domestic extremists, you see. And when you call somebody a domestic terrorist, it's usually in response to something that they've done. And since the domestic violent extremists haven't done anything, it's easier to call them that. Because the idea is that if you don't do something, they might turn into domestic terrorists, you see? So that mom in yoga pants who goes to the school board meeting and yells because she doesn't like the fact that her kids have to read genderqueer in class, that woman is a domestic violent extremist. She could become a domestic terrorist, so we got to watch her. we got to keep tabs on her, you know what I mean? According to the FBI and the DHS, the word violent is important. In defining the federal crime of terrorism as an offense, there is no distinction based on political views. It is simply as a matter of holding those who break the law accountable. And in the post 9-11 paradigm, collecting intelligence and targeting domestic actors to prevent them from breaking the law. Experts agree that as the 2024 election approaches, there will be greater pressure to prevent lawbreaking, one that necessitates infiltration of political circles and other controversial government activity. But because of the difficulty in proving motivation with regard to a charge of domestic terrorism, most prosecutors, being practical, tend to charge individuals with other crimes instead, even in clear cases of political violence. The Department of Justice has used an array of criminal statutes to prosecute individuals who engage in domestic violent extremism, including charges associated with firearms, arson, riots, attacks on federal officers, and in the cases of January 6th, trespassing on government facilities. Even my friends and colleagues Debate as to whether January 6th was an act of terrorism. If you have the people who have been writing about this for 30 plus years struggling with the formulation, you can imagine how difficult it must be for the public. Biden's rhetoric on domestic terrorism could goad his opponents into taking more extreme action, particularly those who have now lost their faith in elections or believe the system is rigged against them. But that's the goal, isn't it? That's the goal. So as a Trump supporter, you are a domestic violent extremist. And if they don't monitor you and if they don't know what you're saying and if they don't control what you're saying, well, then you might turn into a domestic terrorist. 855-839-1210 on Twitter at Rich Zioli. The border wall is a freaking disaster. I'll give you the latest on that. But I want to tell you about my buddy, Dr. Mike Venaria. Great guy. Great friend of the show. The master of dental implants. He's my buddy. Got to go see him. Pediatric general cosmetic dentistry, pain-free root canal treatment if needed. It's all there for you with Dr. Mike Venaria. And two offices to serve you, Cinnamonston and Woodbury, right over the bridge. What a great guy he is. He's a good man. He's, a, he's been in the community for years. And unlike all these chain dental offices, Dr. Mike Venaria is there for his patients every step of the way. Every step of the way. Care is his main priority. <clears throat> Care and comfort not cost. That's why Dr. Mike will give you amazing care. And when it comes to dental implants, these are complicated things. Make sure you go to the best, not the closest dentist, the best dentist. That's Dr. Mike Venaria. Get a free consultation today by going to VenariaDental.com, V-A-N-A-R-I-A, VenariaDental.com. And mark your calendar. Saturday, November 11th is his next Veterans Breakfast and Free Community Shredding Event at his office in Cinnaminson. And I look forward to seeing you there. Venaria Dental.
3: The Oli Show on your schedule from Talk Radio 1210 WPHT in the Free Odyssey app.
0: Oh, man, Nikki Haley surging past uh, Ron DeSantis in the latest New Hampshire poll. Oof, I, can't, I am not a fan of Nikki Haley. I do not want, I think Nikki Haley is a is a warmonger. She's going to wind up getting us into, into war with Iran or we'll be, we'll be even more embedded in Ukraine. But she has surpassed Ron DeSantis in the race for second place in the Republican New Hampshire primary, according to a new poll conducted after the second Republican debate. The former South Carolina governor has surged ahead of DeSantis, capturing 19% support among Republican primary voters compared to DeSantis's 10 percent. But however, Trump is still racking up over 50 percent support in the poll or hovering around 50 percent of the poll of likely New Hampshire Republican presidential primary voters. Forty eight point four percent believe that Trump's nomination is now inevitable which I told you was inevitable at this point. And Haley has been steadily gating on her competitors. Following the first debate in August, Trump pollster Tony Fabrizio sent a memo to fundraisers and allies of the former president, informing them that his internal polls had Haley and Vivek Ramaswamy catching up to DeSantis in New Hampshire. Public opinion strategies, a different poll which is aligned with DeSantis' campaign, confirmed that Haley was rising in Iowa after the debates. So... Uh there you go. I you know, I, I'm not a not a fan of, of Nikki Haley. I hope Trump doesn't even consider picking her as his running mate. I just I, I think it's it's the it, her, her foreign ideas or foreign policy ideas scare me. They really do. I'm not interested in that. But I do think it says a lot about Ron DeSantis. And his fall here, this 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 fall that we're watching before our eyes. I told you, you know, back when he got into this race, and I said that day, I said, look, you know, I'm not going to get into the back and forth, the fighting, the Trump supporters versus the supporters. I said this has got a long way to go here, and I and and I, and I'm and I'm not going to go down this road of killing each other over this because we don't know how DeSantis is going to do. We don't know if he's going to have the money. We don't know if he's going to be able to perform on the national stage. We just don't know these things. And so, we have to really figure out uh, how it's going to play, and he's got to figure this out. I mean, DeSantis has to figure this out for himself, and and here we are. You know, it's October fifth, and his candidacy is floundering at best. At best, you can say that. Some might say it's completely over at this point. Others might simply say that it's just a position of of uh, a long slog that he's got to go through now a long long slog but I I don't know I don't I don't I I think at this point it's the only question is can Ron DeSantis recover for 2028 I think is really the only question uh let's see now Biden is worried, though, about Ukraine funding and that the dysfunctional Congress could compromise aid to Ukraine. So that's his big worry right now, that the dysfunctional Congress, because it's all about Ukraine funding. It's obviously all about that. And nothing nothing else matters but Ukraine funding. Cut number three.
4: Speaker McCarthy, if I can, Speaker McCarthy, then Speaker McCarthy said that the two of you haven't spoken directly in a long time. Why is that? And are you committed to engaging more regularly with the next House Speaker?
5: We had two agreements we shook hands with on. And, uh, I assumed he was working with, I knew he was working with the Democrats in the House and Senate. It wasn't for me to uh, do anything. If he wanted to talk to me, I was available. I'm available to whomever wants to talk to me. But the idea that I was going to somehow convince McCarthy to change his view was not reasonable.
1: Does the disarray on Capitol
4: Hill after your conversation with allies yesterday worry you that you won't be able to deliver the aid that the U.S. has promised to Ukraine?
5: It does worry me, and, but I know there are a majority of members of the House and Senate in both parties who have said that they support funding Ukraine. With your, uh, I'm going to be announcing very shortly a major speech I'm going to make on this issue and why it's critically important for the United States and our allies that we keep our commitment. Mr. President,
4: are you also
1: concerned about the rest of your uh, domestic and foreign policy initiatives being in because of what we saw happen yesterday, the dysfunction in Congress, uh, the chaos that we saw on the House side? Does that concern you in
5: any way? The dysfunction always concerns me. The programs that uh, we have... Uh, argued over. We passed bipartisanly. I'm not concerned that they're going to all of a sudden come in and try to undo them. Although there will be some. There will be some, I'm sure. There's uh, half a dozen or more extreme MAGA Republicans who would like to eliminate just about everything I've done. Um, But uh, I I don't think that's going to get there.
0: I don't think that's going to get there, he says. I don't think that's going to get there. That's what he says about these MAGA Republicans, and I don't think it's going to get there. Um, <laughs> you know, I, as, I, as I think about all of this with you, I, I keep thinking to myself, uh, one thing is very, very clear here. Ukraine funding is the number one priority for this administration. There's nothing even close. That's why when Jim Jordan says, if I'm speaker, we're not doing this. We're not playing this game. We're going to put America first. That's good. We're going to put America first, and that's the way it's going to be. Good. Excellent. I, I That's what I want. That's what I want. Here's Senator J.D. Vance on the issue of Ukraine. He's exactly right. Cut six.
4: Uh, You can go through the list of every single problem. The border, the fentanyl problem, the crime problem, the high inflation. All of these things are far more important to the American people as they should be than defending the border of Ukraine. We have to be honest with ourselves about the corruption in that country, but even if it was a perfect country, there are problems here at home that that deserve our focus and deserve the attention of the government of this country. What happened last week in both the House and the Senate should serve as a wake-up call to the Ukraine First Caucus on Capitol Hill. The American people are over it. So there may be some way, Laura, for them to try to shove another 70 or $80 billion in Ukraine funding down the throats of the House and the Senate. They're going to have to fight through me to get it done, but more importantly, they're going to have to overcome the frustration of the American people. This is really the, the fight of the next couple of weeks. The Uniparty is really going to drive this Ukraine stuff home. People need to wake up. They need to call their Congressman, and they need to push back against putting the interests of a country six thousand miles away ahead of our own
0: i mean it sounds pretty reasonable to me doesn't it sounds pretty reasonable at what uh, the senator's saying right there i think the people who are most angry about what happened to kevin mccarthy if you look at it they really do tend to be the people that want ukraine funding that's really it i mean that's what it, that 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 that's the that's the connection right there that's really what it is because if you've noticed now it's not like Jim Jordan's like hell with that. I mean, I, I was I, I voted to keep Kevin McCarthy, so I'm not going to run. I'm not going to do it because I'm angry. No, it's over. McCarthy is in the rearview mirror now. Now it's only about who becomes the speaker next. But it's but the, but the story here: House Speaker uh, turmoil imperils Ukraine funding. That's what I mean. It's all about this. This is all. This is what it's all about. The ouster of McCarthy as Speaker is throwing the uh, the future of U.S. aid for Ukraine into the air. The assistance had already faced a tough path to passage as more Republicans have come out in opposition to additional aid. But as the race to replace McCarthy heats up, the road ahead has only become rockier. It was clearly a challenge before, but we were going to get it done, said Senator Chris Van Hollen, a Democrat of Maryland, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. It really depends on exactly what emerges from this next round for Speaker. Representative Kevin Hearn, Oklahoma, who heads the biggest conservative caucus in the House and is a possible contender, wouldn't commit to bringing aid for Ukraine to the floor of elected speaker. In remarks to reporters Wednesday, he said, quote, I think that the commander in chief ought to sit down in a classified setting and tell those of us who have not supported uh, Ukraine for the same reason Time and time again, we want to know where the American taxpayer dollars are going and what's the end game. Representative Jim Jordan, chairman of the House Judiciary Committee, said he was against moving forward on Ukraine aid. He said, I'm against that. The most pressing issue on Americans' minds is not Ukraine. It's the border situation and it's crime on the streets. But then you got guys like Mike McCall. Chairman Mike McCall of Texas, the head of the Foreign Affairs Committee, who said, uh, Jim Jordan told us that it would be something that we would deal with, but we want the border security, that piece first, and that would have to be part of the negotiation. But Jordan's office said his position on aid hasn't changed. He wants to know what the mission is, how the money's being spent. So you see what's happening here, right? The back and forth over this really come. It really does come down to Ukraine. I mean, all of this comes down to it. Hearn and Jordan were among a group of more than 100 Republicans who voted against $300 million of aid for Ukraine that was supported by Speaker Kevin McCarthy. It's not clear exactly where Scalise lands on Ukraine at the moment, but he is being favorably considered by Representative Matt Gates, the lawmaker who brought forward the motion to oust McCarthy. A report card on Ukraine support from Defending Democracy Together awarded Scalise a B on the issue. Jordan got an F, and that's in my mind. F is the good score. <laughs> Regardless of their personal position, any new speaker will face those same dynamics McCarthy did. Far-right lawmakers who are generally united against Ukraine aid hold sway in the conference and are expected to keep up their resistance. The Ukraine skepticism is also in line with a chunk of Republican voters who were found less likely to support economic or arms assistance for Kiev in a recent poll pressed by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. Only 47 percent of Republicans supported additional military aid to Ukraine compared to 77 percent of Democrats. Representative Brian Fitzpatrick said that's the historical trend in the West, that we've got war fatigue, and that's what we got to fight against because that's exactly part of Vladimir Putin's playbook. Uh, no, we don't have to fight against it. Just go with what the Republican Party voters want, which is enough is enough already. So anyway, uh, that's, that's where things stand. But you see, when I tell you that the outrage and the gnashing of teeth over what happened to McCarthy, what it really is about, it's not about ousting McCarthy. It's about Ukraine funding. It's about Ukraine funding. They're really, really nervous now that Ukraine is not going to get more funding. And that's what—that's number one priority for all these people. This is the number one priority because again, like I told you, they all have to get their gigs for the military industrial complex. They all got to get their consulting gigs one day and their checks and they got to get their fundraising checks and they got to get their, their fees. And so they want to keep the uh, you know military industrial complex happy. And now they're worried. That's what this is all about. People that are upset about Kevin McCarthy getting ousted, I guarantee you, for the most part, they are pro Ukraine funding. For the most part. Some people don't like it because of the optics or whatever else, but you know. But for the most part, there's a direct correlation of the people who are most angry about McCarthy getting booted with their support for Ukraine funding. 100%. Uh, We got to talk about uh, we got to talk about uh, Donald Trump. The Donald Trump show is over, said Letitia James, the New York state attorney general who is so incredibly biased against Donald Trump. It's not even funny. We're going to talk about that as well. And um, the issue of the border wall. Are we getting a border wall? Are we not getting a border wall? What is going on? Are we getting one? Not getting one. We'll be right back.
3: Thanks for listening. The only show podcast from Talk Radio 1210 WPHT and the Odyssey app.
2: All right, Henry, i got to give you
0: props. I'm not going to tell you I love you, but I will give you props that um, you called it with the Phils. You did. You called it.
1: I, I tried telling you.
0: Congratulations. He's two Thank, and hey, three. Congrats
1: to the Phillies. Congrats he, to the Phillies. I mean, that was huge. Three. Two and two It was huge. Today. Great game last night. Great game. Awesome game. Phenomenal. So what's going to happen next? Are we playing tonight? No. So we play Saturday. That's game one versus the Braves in the NLDS.
0: And that is the Atlanta Braves. Yes, correct. And they are a very good team.
1: Yes. They are the leader in wins this season in the major leagues. Uh, They have the likely MVP in Ronald Acuna and the likely MVP runner-up in Matt Olson. So it's a tough lineup. It's a tough pitching staff. But I think we're right there with them. Really? Totally. I mean, okay, they, good. Yeah, they, I mean, they took the season series, you know, eight five. That's kind of to be expected, but you know, all, all bets are off now. It's a five game series; anything can happen.
0: All right, so uh, five game series, and it's best of five, which means you got to win three. Three.
1: So it'll be two. <laughs> it'll be two in Atlanta, then two back here, and then if it goes to a fifth game, it'll be back in Atlanta. Okay, so we'll start in Philly. No, we start in Atlanta because we start in Atlanta. They're the. Right. Number one. Right, because they're the right. You're right. Right, right, right. Okay.
0: Um, <clears throat> all right. Well good. I mean I'm 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 excited. Saturday and then the Eagles are we got the Eagles playing the on Sunday? Rams. I said that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought I heard that.
0: I had a little uh, thing in my throat, but um, anyway, uh so they're playing the Rams and uh how are we gonna do on that on Sunday?
1: Uh me and Matt are probably both in agreement here that it's gonna be a shootout. Uh, the Rams are getting up there in age. Matt Stafford, their quarterback, loves throwing the ball across the yard. Eagles' defense has been porous. I can say the same thing about the Rams' defense. So you can expect a lot of points on Sunday. A lot of points on Sunday. Yeah. All right, and is Maryland going to beat Ohio State? Ooh, Maryland's got a good team this year. I was very surprised at that. Um, At the very least, they're going to give them a scare.
0: Somebody sent me the lines. I don't know how to read all that. I have no idea what any of that means. It's like speaking Chinese. like sending me something in Mandarin Chinese. Yeah, I
1: want to look at that. Hold on.
0: Take a look at that for me. I'm also going to read you. I got this picture of uh, four people with jerseys on. They had a Kelsey Kelsey Cox Hurts Swift. (laughs) (laughs) Please
2: don't read that again. (laughs) By the way, Maryland is a a big-time underdog against Ohio State oh points. yeah 20 point underdog
0: wow yeah 20 point underdog against Ohio State Yep. my terps yeah their odds well that's not are, good <laughs> Their odds of I mean, winning are eight to one according you, I mean to Vegas.
1: You're, yeah you're going to the horseshoe you're going to Columbus trying to you know you're go you're going into the the mouth of the lines then it's like coming to the bank or anything like that it's it's going to be a tough test to win there but you know if Maryland's as good as they they say they are you know they'll cover that 19 and a half point spread
0: yeah at well the that's, very true. Least. that's 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 actually a good point
1: and I, you know, people rag on Ohio State a lot. You know, their coach born on or born on third and thinks he hit a triple type stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, calling out old people after big victories this season. I think they're vulnerable. I, I think they're definitely vulnerable, and the Terps could play a spoiler. Ah, oh, man! With Talia Tagovailoa as quarterback. Yeah, that guy's from what Hawaii or something. Yeah, his brother. His brother is the quarterback <laughs> for the Dolphins, and he's very good. So. What's funny about that,
0: DeSantis, what? Uh, I I didn't know that you
1: weren't familiar with the Taglio Bowl.
0: I saw the guy had a lay-on, so I thought he was from Hawaii.
1: Yeah, they are.
0: Yeah, see? No, listen. I the thing about it is, and this is this is the truth of it. I, you know, I went to Maryland. To, obviously, I mentioned that every you know show, but I love the Terps. I used to love going to Terps football games, and I'm into it. But, but more importantly, Patrick's into it. So oh, awesome. this is it's great. So this is this is real father son bonding opportunities for us. You know, I, I mean, I had a thing last night, but he but we watched the game together the night before. He's fired up for this weekend because we're going to watch the Maryland game, the Phillies game, the Eagles game. So you see, when you have a nine year old son, he's almost nine years old this is a great time to bond like my daughter claire has no interest whatsoever she could care less about sports and my daughter reagan has the attention span of a, of a fruit fly so she can't sit there for more than a single play you know what i mean but we got we got the kids all the gear we got them all the eagles gear the phillies gear so they're all fired up and it's great because you know as a dad to, to hang out with my nine-year-old son you know, these are the moments, right? Eventually he's going to want to go watch the game with his friends, but for right now all he wants to do is watch it with me. That's awesome. Like I love that. That's the, that's the greatest for me. So I'm walking him to school this morning and we're talking about this and he's like, "Dad, we got a great weekend coming up. We got Maryland, we got the Phillies, we got the Eagles." I'm like, "I know, buddy. It's going to be awesome." He's like, "We're all going to watch we're going to watch the games together, right, Dad?" I said, "Yes, buddy." "Absolutely, Patrick. We're going to watch all three together." So that for me is the best part of it because as you know, not the biggest sports guy, but I do got to tell you though, when the Phillies and the Eagles are winning and the Terps are winning, it makes it a whole lot easier.
1: Oh, so it's so much better that way, right? Right. I mean, and plus, on top of that, you're you're like passing down your your fandom on your son. You're you know you're you're making him be a Philly sports fan. On top of that, you're bringing your alma mater into it, and you're helping him be a Terps fan as well. See that? Yeah, I love that.
0: So it's good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Five o'clock hour coming up. The border wall. Is it happening? Is it not happening? Uh, three police officers were shot in Philadelphia. Thank God that they are all going to to uh, to survive. But uh, this is why we ride. This is why we raise money for the families behind the badge. Because uh, stuff like this happens in our very, very violent city. And um, what will happen when it comes to Robert Menendez after it comes out that his wife killed somebody with her car and nothing Happened to her, not even a real investigation. A lot to talk about, 30 minutes of non-stop talk coming up for you. Straight ahead, don't go away.
3: Rich only weekday afternoons 3 to 7. Talk radio 1210, WPHT, and on the Free Odyssey app.
2: T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours.